All right, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8? And if you're new with us, we want to say hi, welcome you. Let you know we are studying, working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And currently we are in John chapter 8. And as we have said in previous studies, this chapter contains the most heated confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees of his entire ministry. But understand, it was a fight he fought for us. John began his gospel by telling us that Jesus came from heaven into a fallen world of darkness. That would be a reference to Satan's lies, false doctrine, moral evil. Jesus came into a world of darkness with spiritual light. In fact, he was the light. Uh, but the truth he spoke was light in this dark world. He himself said in Luke 19, verse 10, that he came into the world on a search and rescue mission to seek and to save those who were lost. Of course, by saying that, the Lord was talking about saving people from hell. But understand, people go to hell because they have embraced Satan's lies. So in that regard, the Bible says they have been taken captive by the devil. And so Jesus came to rescue those who had been taken captive by the devil. We talked a couple of weeks ago how the devil takes people captive through his lies, through his demonic ideologies. Spiritual warfare at its core is a battle for your thoughts, for your thinking. Because as a man, woman thinks in their heart, so are they. And Bible teaches that. And so spiritual warfare is a war to control your mind, your thinking. Uh, to get you to think certain ways away from what God wants you to think, the Word of God. Uh, the devil wants to keep you away from that. He wants to, to, to get you to think his thoughts the way he wants so he can control your life. And so people who do that, who embrace his lies, his false ideologies, and so on, have been taken captive by him. And Jesus tells us the only thing powerful enough to set them free is God's truth. Now, he said that very clearly in verse 32 of John 8, where he said that God's truth alone has the power to make us free. And guys, that's what makes John 8 such a blessing and why we have taken our time going through it. Because in it, Jesus, the light of the world, is giving us God's truth, which sets us free from Satan's lies and then becomes the light that guides us through the darkness of this world all the way to our home in heaven. As he said in this very chapter, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And guys, what primarily is the light, the truth that Jesus spoke of that sets men and women free from the bondage of the devil? Well, it's the gospel in particular. In general, it's the entire word of God, especially the New Testament. But I think here he's talking about the gospel in, uh, in particular. And when it comes to the gospel, it's critical that people understand that the gospel is built on the truth. Listen. This is essential doctrine. is built on the truth that Jesus is God in human form. Jesus is God in human form, which people must believe to be saved. Remember back in verse 24, he said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. The idea is you'll die and go to hell. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The he 
is in italics and is not there in the original. Jesus said, you're going to die in your sins and go to hell if you don't believe that I am. Of course, I am is the name of God. Remember Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14? Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Lord, I don't even know. Who should I tell him is sending me? I don't even know your name. Tell him I am is sending you. I am, the name of God. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, excuse me, verse 12, um, in fact, John built this whole gospel around these seven I am statements. We see one of them right here in chapter 8, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But I like to read those like a name followed by a description. I am, the name of God, comma, the light of the world, a description of what he is. He's the great I am, he's God, but then to us, he's the light of the world. Kind of like saying Phil Ballmeyer, comma, the pastor. My name followed by a description of what I do. Kind of the same thing. As we study John 8, understand the whole chapter is built around Jesus' declaration of divinity, which is the very foundation of the gospel message. Now, as Jesus proclaimed himself to be God, the very foundation, you can't get saved. The gospel will do you no good if you don't believe Jesus is God. Not a God, not one of many gods. The Almighty Jehovah God, Yahweh, in human form. And of course, that's the truth Satan wants to keep people away from. This is why this, he's fighting this battle for us, as we said. He wants to set the record straight. The devil wants to keep people in darkness, to get, get them to embrace his lies because he wants to keep them unsaved, on their way to hell. Jesus came to be the light, to correct the record, to give the truth, the, to light people's way to God. This is what he's fighting for in John 8. This is why we've taken our time. And that led him to go four rounds, as we have said, with these Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. This chapter is kind of built around these four rounds, using a kind of a fight metaphor. Round one, there are different themes of each of the rounds. Round one, light and darkness, 12 to 20. Round two, life and death, verses 21 to 30. Round three, freedom and bondage is the theme, verses 31 to 47. Round four, honor and dishonor, verses 48 through 59. We are currently in round three, the theme of which is freedom and bondage. Back up to verse 31 again. Let's read it. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Indeed, the Greek word is truly, alethes, you are truly my disciples, implying there are false disciples of Jesus. And folks, the church is loaded with them in these last days. Verse 32 you continue in my word, you're my disciples. Truly, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say, you know, you're going to make us free? Total case of denial and self-deception on the part of the Pharisees. Worst deception is self-deception, okay? Jesus answered that statement, verse 34. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. The Greek is habitually, continually. We all sin. What he's talking about is a lifestyle of sin. Whoever continually and habitually lives in sin is a slave of sin. That's the idea. Okay? Now remember, 
Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees who were ultra-religionists. They were so pious, quote-unquote, they even tithed from their herb gardens. Okay? The problem was they had religion, but not a relationship with God through His Son. And as such, being very religious, they offered sacrifices to God in the temple, kept the feast days, holy days, new moons, and Sabbaths. Very religious, but were still in bondage to the devil, who was using their fallen sin nature to manipulate and control them. Look, when a person received Jesus Christ as their Savior, now this is Christianity 101, but I'm going to mention it again since we're in this section. When a person receives Jesus as their Savior, they receive a new nature. Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit moves in, gives us a new nature, the nature of God. And as such, we now, at that moment of salvation, we now have the ability, listen, not the certainty, it's not automatic, but we have the ability to be controlled by the Holy Spirit at that point if we want to be controlled. A lot of carnal Christians out there. They want to be saved, but they want to still be in control of their life. If we want to be led by the Spirit in everything, He's more than willing to do that. But we have to submit to Him every day. Uh, put our, nail our will to the cross and walk in the will of God which we learn from the Word of God. The Pharisees maintain in verse 33 that because they were children of Abraham, they were free from bondage to sin and heaven bound. And while the Lord acknowledged their relationship to Abraham, verse 37, in other words, that they were truly born uh, descendants of Abraham. But as you read that, you, know, you of course, if you know the scriptures, you know the Old Testament book of Genesis. Abraham had two sons. One by a free woman named Sarah. Her son was called named Isaac. And the other by a slave woman named Hagar. Her son was Ishmael. Ishmael, although a physical son of Abraham, was still the son of a slave. And himself an unbeliever. He lived in Abraham's house until he was 13. And then he was cast out of Abraham's house. Whereas Isaac, the true son of promise, uh, son of Sarah and Abraham, who himself was a believer, was allowed to remain in his father's house. Now, Jesus seems to have had this in mind when he said in verses 35 and 6, And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The Lord Jesus is telling these Jewish religious leaders that even though they were the physical descendants of Abraham, in other words, they were born into his house, that's a word that means family, they were still the slaves of sin. You know, there's a lot of Jews... To this day, well, all Jews are descendants of Abraham. Some are true believers who will enter into the millennial kingdom when Messiah, when Messiah comes to establish it. Many Jews, descendants of Abraham, are not going to be allowed. They're going to be cast out. Like eventually Ishmael, a descendant of Abraham, was cast out. He was an unbeliever. And Isaac was allowed to remain because he was a true believer. 
there are Jews who are true believers. And when Messiah comes, they will enter the kingdom. They will enter, in a sense, the Father's house. Look, you can have the blood of Abraham in your veins and not have the faith of Abraham in your heart. That is really the issue Jesus is dealing with. There are some people, I was raised in the Catholic Church, who believe because they're born Catholics, they're, they're in. Born Catholic, baptized Catholic, they're a shoo-in. They're making the same mistake the Pharisees made with Judaism. Jesus is telling these guys what they, what they really need. You know, they, they needed to believe in Jesus, right? They needed to receive him as their Savior, and then they would no longer be slaves of sin, but listen, sons of God. Look, every human being born into this life is born a descendant of Adam, and as such, a slave of sin. The only way for a slave to be set free from the family of Adam is to be born again through receiving Jesus Christ. At that moment, they are born into a new family, the family of God. No longer slaves to sin as Adam. I hope I said Adam and not Abraham. I did that first service. Every human being born into this life is born a descendant of Adam. I hope I said that. When Adam blew it in the Garden of Eden, he became a slave to sin. All, all of his descendants after him were born slaves to sin. And Adam's family, the Adam's family, scary stuff, is a cursed family. Everyone born of Adam is going to die, going to go to hell. Unless they can escape the family of Adam, how do you do that? By being born into another family. What does that mean? Well, the family of God, through Jesus Christ. No longer the curse of Adam's family will rest upon you, it Adam all die. Now the blessings of God will rest upon you as children of, of God, right? And this was the freedom that Jesus was referring to for those who believe in him, that they are set free from being the slave of sin and ultimately of death to be free indeed. Not as the Pharisees thought they were free. We've never been in bondage to any man. We're free. No, you're not. You think you're free. You're deceived into thinking you're free. You're deluded. You're delusional. You have no idea. You're blind to the fact that you're slaves of sin. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. You come to me, you receive me, Jesus is saying, and I'll make you free indeed. The kind of freedom that will last forever in the Father's house. You'll be the family of God, the children of God. You'll live forever in the, in the house of God, heaven. This truth about unbelievers, no matter how religious they are, Jesus is really driving this point home to these guys. But this truth about unbelievers, no matter how religious they are being the slaves of sin, is something he wanted to drive home to the Pharisees when he said in verse 34, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever continually, habitually commits sin is a slave of sin. He's talking there about the sin nature. He's not using sin as a verb in the sense of actions. He's using it as a kind of a noun in the sense of your nature. Okay, Paul does this a lot in, in Romans in his writings, where you see him use the word sin. And he's really talking about the sin nature, which gives rise to the acts of sin. Jesus is telling these guys, you go out and do acts of sin because that's all you know. It's your nature. And he's telling these guys, whatever actions dominate, 
He's telling all of us, whatever actions dominate a person's life, whether obedience to God or sin, is the evidence of whether or not that person is a child of God or a child of the devil. All of us sin. We're talking about a lifestyle, though, a lifestyle. All Christians can blow it. But our, our, the lifestyle that we live now is not to live continuously, habitually in sin anymore. Because we have a new nature. Turn to 1 John 2. John hits this very hard in his first epistle, which we are studying on Wednesday night. First John 2, starting with verse 3. I'll paraphrase this a little bit so you get the flavor of what he's actually saying. And we can be sure that we know him. And, and he's talking about a deep, intimate knowledge that comes through salvation. So he's saying, by this we know that we can know we're saved, is the idea we're Christians. If we obey, and the idea is continually, on a regular basis, his commandments. Verse 4, if someone claims, I know God, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. Or in other words, is an unbeliever. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in him, in Jesus, does not sin. The idea is doesn't live continuously in sin. Whoever sins, again continually, has neither seen him nor known him. They're not a Christian. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who practices sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. The seed of God, the Holy Spirit, is in us now. And he cannot, again, the Greek is, live habitually in sin because he has been born of God. He has a new nature, or she has a new nature. And so, guys, once again... When Jesus told the Pharisees that they were slaves of sin, it was a reference to their sinful, fallen nature that they were still in bondage to. And as such, they were still under the control of the devil, and therefore hell-bound, not heaven-bound, unless the Son set them free. Then they would be truly free from Satan and sin. But only, only if they received Jesus as their Savior believing him to be Yahweh, the great I am in human form. Jesus made it a point to drive this truth home to the Pharisees, whom he really did love. I mean, they clashed all the time because they were presenting error and he was presenting truth. And guys, you can love people that you disagree with, okay? And Jesus had some heated confrontations with these guys, but he did want them saved. He did want them going to heaven. That's why he kept trying to give them the truth. If he didn't love them, didn't want, wanted them to go to hell, he wouldn't have even bothered. That's why he was talking to these guys. He engaged with these guys. He wanted to give them the truth. He wanted to see them saved. And by the way, there was a group of Pharisees who had gotten saved. Nicodemus was one. There were others. But Jesus made a point to drive this truth home to the Pharisees because they thought their religion, 
and their relationship with Abraham saved them. And Jesus pointed out that they had no relationship with God based on human genealogy or religious rituals like circumcision. Religion cannot save us. Religion cannot set us free from Satan's bondage. It can't do anything to combat the old fallen nature. Only the new birth in Christ can do that, give us a new nature, and, and put us on a path to heaven. They didn't realize that. They thought, hey, we're children of Abraham, we're a shoo-in, we have Judaism, we're the people of God, we have the temple, we're in. And Jesus wanted to know, no, you are not in. Your religion has not given you a relationship with God. That only comes through me, Jesus told them. And as slaves to sin and blind to it, they desperately needed to be set free from their spiritual bondage and become true children of God with God as their father. Now, guys, let me say a few words about sin, since Jesus brought it up in our passage. Just some basics first. The word sin is a Greek word that literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. It was an archery term for hitting the bullseye on a target. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. In other words, all have missed the mark. All have missed the bullseye. Of course, the next question is, well, what does the mark or the bullseye represent? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The bullseye is the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's sinless perfection. Which, by the way, is how God originally created man, woman, in the first place, in the Garden of Eden. We read Genesis 1 that God made man, Mr. and Mrs. Man, in his own image and after his own likeness, right? That implies he made them perfect, sinless, as he is perfect and sinless. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, no sin, no moral impurity. He is absolutely perfect, holy, righteous, and so on. And he made Adam and Eve that way in the garden when he first created them. Now, there are atheists and assorted antagonists of the Bible who adamantly oppose the whole idea of a sinless, perfect deity who created all things. Their argument goes something like this, and this is the greatest argument the atheist has ever come up with to disprove our God. All right, here it is. If you haven't heard it yet, you will. Okay, here it is. We talk about a perfect, all-powerful, all-loving God, and here's what they say to challenge us. If God is sinless and perfect in goodness, and he created everything, then where did evil come from? God must have created it, which means he can't be all good or evil would not exist. Now that's really the essence of what their main argument is against us and against the concept of a holy, righteous, pure, all good, all powerful God. If he was so great, if he was so good, he was so powerful, where did evil come from? He must have created it, because you Christians say, he made everything. Nothing was made. He, John chapter 1, verse 3, 
All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Speaking of Jesus. So if Jesus made everything, evil is something. He must have made evil. How could he be a good guy? You know, Augustine dealt with this back in the 4th century A.D. Or the 5th century, 400 A.D. He said, and I quote, To say God created everything, evil is something, therefore God created evil, is to miss the real nature of evil. God is the author of everything. We accept that premise. But evil is not a thing. It is a lack in a thing. Hence, it does not follow that God is the author of evil, end quote. Well, Dr. Norman Geisler, who just went home to be at the Lord a few weeks ago, tremendous man of God and apologist of the Christian faith, he took that thought by uh, Augustine and he uh, expanded it on a little bit so we get a clear understanding of what is being said. He said, and I quote, evil is a privation or a lack. Evil is like rust to a car or rot to a tree. It's a kind of parasite. It exists only in something else. The Bible teaches that a good God created a good universe and gave man a good thing called free will, which allowed for the possibility of evil to enter God's universe and corrupt it, end quote. In that regard, guys, sin is not a created thing. In other words, God didn't create sin. He created good things. In fact, at every day of creation, he said, God said, it's good, it's good. After he created six days, he stepped back and looked at everything he had made, and it was all good. That was chapter 2, right? Chapter 3, Satan takes the form of a serpent and tempts Adam and Eve, and they ate the forbidden fruit and fell, and that's where sin came from. It entered the world and corrupted it. It was not made by God. It doesn't exist as a thing. It exists as a thing inside of another thing or, or feeding on something else. Sin was not created by God. Again, it's like rust is a lack of wholeness to steal. Rot is a lack of wholeness in a tree. Sin is a lack of wholeness in God's creation. Let me illustrate what a, with a story I heard years ago. And maybe some of you have heard it. And if you have, bear with me. Because it gets to the point of what we're talking about. In fact, I like to use it to springboard into the final part of this message. It's that important that we understand this. But uh, let me illustrate what I'm talking about with the story. I'll read it to you. It goes like this, and I quote, At a certain college, there was a professor with a reputation for being tough on Christians. We don't see that much in colleges today, but okay. At the first class, every semester, he asked if anyone was a Christian, and then and proceeded to degrade and mock their statement of faith. One semester, he asked the question, and a young man raised his hand when asked if anyone was a Christian. The professor asked, did God make everything, young man? Yes, sir, he did, the young man replied. The professor responded, if God made everything, then God made evil. And if we can only create from within ourselves, then God is evil. The student didn't have a response, and the professor was happy to have once again proved the Christian faith to be a myth. Then another man raised his hand and asked, may I ask you something, sir? Yes, you may, responded the professor. The young man stood up and said, Sir, is there such a thing as cold? Of course there is. What kind of question is that? Haven't you ever been cold? The young man replied, Actually, sir, cold does not exist. What we consider to be cold is really only the absence of heat. Absolute zero is when there is absolutely no heat. 
But cold does not really exist. We have only created that term to describe how we feel when heat is not there. The young man continued, sir, is there such a thing as darkness? Once again, the professor responded, of course there is. And once again, the student replied, actually, sir, darkness does not exist. Darkness is really only the absence of light. Darkness is only a term man developed to describe what happens when there is no light present. Finally, the young man asked, sir, is there such a thing as evil? The professor responded, of course. We have rapes and murders and violence everywhere in the world. Those things are evil. The student replied, actually, sir, evil does not exist. Evil is simply the absence of God. Evil is a term man developed to describe when God is absent. God did not create evil. It isn't like truth or love, which exists as virtues, like heat and light. Evil is simply the state where God is not present, like cold without heat or darkness without light. The professor had nothing to say, end quote. Listen, the degree to which we are filled with God will be the degree to which we are not filled with hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, lust, or in other words, evil. The closer we get to God, the more we are filled with him. The more we are filled with him, the less we will be filled with sin. This then becomes what I'll call our spiritual God gauge. Our spiritual God gauge. Kind of like the, uh, you know, the fuel gauge, gas gauge on the dashboard of your car, right? That tells you when your car is getting low on gas. We have a God gauge that tells us when we're getting low on God. What do you mean low on God? I don't want to lose you. Hang in there. This God gauge tells us when we are running out of God, when we're getting low on God, okay? You better get to church and fill up, you know? It's like you better get to a gas station and fill up your car when the gas gauge is getting on empty. The less we are filled with God, the more sin and self rush in to, filled, to fill the void. When we begin to see selfishness, vindictiveness, gossip, profanity, prejudice, outbursts of anger, and other traits that used to characterize our lives before Jesus saved us, slowly creeping back into our lives, know this. They are, they are the God gauge that is telling us we are not filled with God as much as we once were. Now, if that is true, and I believe it is, as we look at the church of Jesus Christ in America today, I think it's obvious that a lot of Christians are on E when it comes to their walk with God. I think Christians today, for the most part, are acting like the world more than like Jesus. Like the world more than they are acting like Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul's prayer for the people of God is that we would be listened filled with all the fullness of God. So if I can use our little metaphor, Paul wants your spiritual gas tank filled up with God all the time, all the time. You see, Paul knew that the more a Christian is filled with God, the Holy Spirit, 
the less they will be filled with self and sin as a result. And that's why the Apostle Paul admonished us, and you can turn to this one, in Ephesians 5, verse 18. This is exactly what Paul the Apostle was thinking of when he said this. Now, he didn't know anything about gas gauges and gas tanks. We do. If he was around today, he would have said it this way, I'm convinced. Your God gauge is going to start signaling you're getting on close to empty when you start seeing the old traits, the old language, the old ways of thinking, the old actions start seeping back into your life now that you're a Christian. We call it being backslidden. Okay, that's obvious, as some people are really backslidden. It's pretty clear where they are with God. But for a lot of pe people, Christians, it's much more subtle. They're still going to church. They're still reading the Word. It's just that the language is starting to come back that they used to have victory over. Maybe they're starting to have a cigarette once in a while like they used to, or a glass of wine like they used to have. Paul is saying that's an indication that your God tank is getting, your spiritual gas tank is getting low if you start reverting back to the old ways. And that's why he said in Ephesians 8, 5, verse 18, don't be drunk with wine. Don't, don't fill yourself with wine, alcohol. That's a waste of your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, what exactly does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with God? Very important topic. We ought to know what that means, right? Well, the Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest gives four things that come through in the Greek that will help us to understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll give you these quickly, okay? First of all, the phrase, be filled with the Spirit, again, Ephesians 5.18, is a command in the Greek, not a suggestion. It's a command, okay? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, a command that God expects us to obey, and it's plural, which means it, it applies to all Christians, okay? Not just a select few of professional Christians in professional ministry, like pastors, evangelists, missionaries, that kind of thing. This is a command that's for all the children of God. Why? Because we can't begin to do the work God has called us to do without the power of the Holy Spirit, which comes when we are filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus made, uh, Jesus made that very clear. He told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth, but you're not ready to go yet. Go back to Jerusalem and wait for the power from on high, the Holy Spirit, to come upon you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he said, then you will receive power to do the work I've called you to do. Guys, I believe that this is the greatest need in the church today and the single greatest reason why the church is so ineffective in the world in its work for God. Not that we're not making some progress, I'm just talking about in general. The greatest single reason why the church is so ineffective in the world and its work for God and why we're losing the culture war to the devil when Jesus clearly told us, 
promised us against his church the gates of hell would not prevail because we're trying to do the work of God in our own strength, ingenuity, and intelligence and not in the power of the Holy Spirit. Move over, Holy Spirit. I got my degree now. I don't need you anymore. I can do it now. I can take it from here. Oh, they would never say that. But that's how they act. I like the quote from A.W. Tozer. I've given it to you many times. It's so relevant to this topic. Tozer said, another great man of God, if we remove the Holy Spirit from the work of the early church, about 90% of what they were doing would have come to a stop. That's the early church. If we removed the Holy Spirit from the work of the church today, about 10% of what is being done would come to a stop, end quote. That's because people in the church are not looking to... Many churches don't even believe in the Holy Spirit in the sense that he gives power and so on. They acknowledge he's there somewhere, but God forbid you should talk about the Holy Spirit. They start sweating. You know, it's like, you know, you're like you're going to start speaking in tongues or something, you know, and freak out on them. They give the Holy Spirit lip service, but they don't really rely on the Spirit's power. They don't avail themselves to the Spirit's power. Number two, in the Greek, the verb filled is in the present tense and denotes a continuous action. Let me paraphrase. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why continually? Moody said we're leaky vessels. We're leaky vessels. We've got to be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's important, guys, because God never intended us to be reservoirs to contain the Holy Spirit. He intended us to be channels through which the Holy Spirit could flow from our lives to a lost and dying world around us. Jesus said this earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. It says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive for the Spirit. Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. When he went to the cross, three days later rose from the dead. He eventually ascended back to the Father on the Feast of Pentecost. Forty days later, the Spirit was poured out. The Spirit was poured out. He uh, ascended 40 days. Uh, he spent some time with them. And then when he ascended, he told them, wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father, the outpouring of the Spirit. That happened on Pentecost. It was 10 days later at that point. Look, in Ephesians 5, 18, Paul told us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? In Colossians 3, 16, which is the parallel passage, he substituted the phrase, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If you compare the two passages, Ephesians 5, 18, Colossians 3, 16. In Ephesians 5, 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Kids, obey your parents. Parents, don't, don't uh, provoke your, your children. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Kids, obey your parents. Uh, parents, don't provoke your children. The same context. 
which tells me being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly are synonymous terms in the mind of Paul and the Holy Spirit, of course. Which tells me, as we stay in fellowship with the Lord Jesus, abiding in Him through the Word of God, we will enjoy, listen, a constant flow of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives. Of course, sin will sever that fellowship and will dry up the flow of power God's power until we repent. So a lot of powerless Christians, not because the power is not available, it's because they are living in sin. Why would God give you his power to do his work when you're feeding the flesh and living for the world as a Christian? You get serious about God, he'll get serious about you. What did James say? Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. God wants to use you. God wants to give you the power you need to do the work he's called you to do. You have to want it, though. And I have to want it. Number three, in the Greek, the verb filled is in the passive voice. Passive voice. Which indicates an action being done to us and not being controlled by us. In other words, we do not fill ourselves. The Holy Spirit does the filling. Now, here's the thing. You say, well, no, I'm confused. You said in point one, it's a command for us to be filled with the Spirit. Now you're telling me I can't do that. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the Holy Spirit does the filling. Well, what's, where's the command then? The command is for you to let Him. For you to let Him fill you. The Holy Spirit will never force Himself on us, but will fill us as much as we desire. As much as we desire. And a lot of that has to do with how much self is in us. You, the Holy Spirit, you know, is not going to fill an eight-ounce glass full of dirt with eight ounces of water. If you know, what I'm saying, if, if most of your life is carnal and fleshly and self, there'll be very little. The Holy Spirit's going to be able to pour Himself into you. You confess your sins, take spiritual inventory, and and repent, and and really want to get your heart right and clean. With then the Spirit will fill you, overflowing. You have to. Permit, if I can use that. Oh, told me i got to permit God. God doesn't need my permission. Yeah, he's giving you free will. He wants your permission. He won't force himself on you. So allow the Spirit to fill you. See, I did. The, you know, the prayer of many Christians, I used to pray this all the time myself before I wised up, started studying the Scriptures, right? The prayer of many Christians is, Oh, Lord, give more of your spirit to me. Maybe you've prayed that. In reality, here's what our prayer should be. Lord, help me to give more of me to your spirit. The idea is surrender, isn't it? And the goal is total surrender. The more you surrender to God, the more the, of, of God, the spirit, and his power you'll have in your life. Little surrender, little power. Total surrender, you will be dynamic for Jesus Christ. And number four, quickly. In the Greek, the word filled expresses the idea of being controlled by. Controlled by. I will use the same word filled as it comes out of the New Testament, different contexts. I don't have time to explain each of the contexts. You can go right down the reference and look it up yourself. Okay? Uh, we're, we're trying to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Well, there's other 
uh, places in the New Testament where the word filled is used with regard to other things, right? Luke 4, 28 and 29. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him, Jesus, out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. They were pretty upset. You can read about why. Again, when it says that they were filled with wrath, it means that they were controlled by wrath at that moment. And for that reason, they tried to kill Jesus. Acts 13, 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. The Jews were filled with envy, which means that the Jews were being controlled by envy and opposed the ministry of Paul and Barnabas controlled by this envy, obsessed with envy. John 16, verse 6, But because I have said these things, Jesus said this in the upper room. Excuse me. Uh, they were already out of the upper room. They were on their way to the Mount of Olives by this point, but night before the crucifixion. John 16, 6, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Again, because Jesus said he was going away, his disciples were being consumed and controlled by sorrow at that moment. And one more, Acts 6, verse 8, And Stephen, full or filled with faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. In other words, Stephen was a man filled with faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The idea is that Stephen was controlled. Controlled by his faith. A lot of you are, they have faith, they're not controlled by faith. They believe the right things, they just don't live it. But Stephen was a man who was controlled by his faith and by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, guys, and we're done. To be filled with the Spirit in part, or to use Paul's terms and so, somewhere else, to be filled with all the fullness of God. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, we've talked about it. But what it means in part, and Paul said to be filled with the, all the fullness of God, that's what he said, the goal of every Christian is to be filled with all the fullness of God means to be constantly controlled by the Spirit in our mind, our will, our emotions, and of course, in our actions. And again, guys, the idea is surrender. Surrender. I've said this before. Let me say it again, because we are done. Okay. The Christian life is not hard to understand. I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to understand. It's all about you getting saved and then beginning to relinquish control of your life more and more to God. That, that's in a nutshell, okay? People want to make it very difficult, very deep. Receive Christ and let go. Because for all of our lives before we received Christ, we were in control. How do we do? How do we do? Not so good, right? Some worse than others. But when you gave your heart to Christ, what the Holy Spirit is telling you, you know, Get your hands off the steering wheel. Let me get in there and start controlling your life. Okay, Lord, then I'll sit next to you and be your co-pilot. I don't want you to be my co-pilot. As I've said, get in the back. Get in the trunk. Lock the trunk. Stay back there. I don't want you up here fooling around with things. Oh, Lord, we just, you, you got to, get, get your hands off the wheel, okay? Just let me take control. That, that's the whole goal of the Christian life in a nutshell. Learning to give full control, full surrender to the Holy Spirit. Now, look, a person whose life is not being controlled by the Holy Spirit is either a carnal Christian, that's for another message, or is a flat-out unbeliever, that's what we're talking about. 
although it could be very religious. And so when Jesus said to these Pharisees that they were the slaves of sin because they constantly lived lives that were dominated by their fallen sinful nature, he was telling them that they were empty of the presence of God. In other words, that they were unbelievers. <laughs> now, if you want to get a religious person to go ballistic and really get upset, tell them that their God gauge is unempty. Or in other words, that God isn't in them. I've had it happen. And you know, you do it nicely, okay? You try to explain to them, look, religion is not going to get you to heaven because there are some folks very, I know Catholics who go to Mass every day of the week. I mean, you know, you go up and tell them, you know, your God gauge is unempty. God's not in you. They want to take, take a frying pan and smack you upside the head with it. You've got to be tactful, okay? Be tactful. Now, look, I was where you are. I went to church. I did the lighting the candles and praying the rosary and, and doing all that stuff. Then I read my Bible, and it, it's clear. Jesus said, we don't get to heaven by religion. We, we get there by relationship. And to have a relationship with God, get to receive his son and, and show them the scriptures and be gentle and kind. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was quite that kind. He did love these guys. He did want them to be saved. But um, <laughs> he did pretty much just flat out say it. The reason you guys are the slaves of sin is because God is not in you. God is not in you. I don't care how much you go to temple and bring the sacrifices and keep all the feast days and new moons and Sabbaths. That's religion. Religion can't save you. Your God gauge is on empty. God is not in you at all. And essentially, that's what Jesus began to tell these religious men to finish out chapter 8, which caused this confrontation, listen, to escalate to the point of an atom bomb. Maybe I should call it an Adam bomb, because they were still an Adam, thinking that they were righteous. But this confrontation really begins to escalate now. I mean, really escalates. Um, like a bomb going off. Uh, now, in it, a lot of truth was given by Jesus that the Pharisees didn't want to hear. And we'll look at that, God willing, next time as we continue with chapter 8, maybe finish it. Probably won't. <laughs> but, you know, this is a doctrinal chapter, and doctrine takes longer. He said, well, I like devotional messages. That's coming. That's coming. But let's get the doctrine nailed down. And then the devotion follows, right? So, Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you, Lord, to please continue to lead us and bless our time in your word for your glory, that we would mind the truth and use it as light to guide our path through the darkness of this world, this, the devil's lies. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.